Amen. Guess what movie I saw last night? Which one? The new Top Gun movie, Top Gun Maverick. It was so awesome. I hate you. <laughs> I really want to watch it. <laughs> You've got to see it, man. And also, you know, it really put me in the right mindset for today's episode, uh, which is about Colonel Gaddafi. So it put me right <laughs> back in the mid 80s when, you know, America's neoconservative muscular sort of confidence was uh, was at its uh, at its peak. And Gaddafi was the great enemy of the world. What did uh, Reagan call him again? The mad dog of the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> except except this is a problem with Reagan. He never knew his geography. Actually, he was supposed to be technically the mad dog of North Africa. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, poor North Africans, they're always being lumped in as Middle Easterners. They must think, we're not Middle Easterners. We're not Middle Easterners. We're North Africans. Although, frankly, given the history we're going to talk about today, I don't know which, which I'd rather be. Indeed. <laughs> right. Let's get into it. And I've got to be more careful about what I say during these recordings. In our last episode, I just you know casually announced that uh, we'd be discussing the notorious 1973 oil embargo today. But in fact, we're actually not going to discuss the oil embargo. <laughs> <laughs> so for any dear listeners who have tuned in hoping for our take on the oil embargo, you're out of luck. Maybe another time. Now we are talking about something far more interesting than the oil embargo. We are talking about the... King of kings of Africa, the dean of the Arab presidents, you know, the uh, what he called himself also the, the, the imam of all Muslims, <laughs> you know, the, the colonel, the uh, leader of the great glorious revolution of the conqueror. Um, yeah, that's what it, the name of the official revolution in Libya, <laughs> Muammar Gaddafi. <laughs> yes, today we're focusing on Libya, a country that we've rather ignored over these three seasons, but not today. Before we go back in time, Eamon, tell us, what's the situation like in Libya at the moment? It's a scrambled egg uh, of politics. Let's put it this way. I mean, you have uh, former Libyan regime, you know, military uh, figures like uh, Khalifa Haftar, you know, the field marshal Khalifa Haftar, as he called himself, um, in the east of Libya. Um, and you have remnants of the jihadist uh, LIFG, uh, the Libyan Islamic Fighter Group, um, led by Abdul Hakim Balhaj, uh, you know, based out of um, uh, Tripoli. And then you have, uh, you know, the Turkish uh, and Muslim Brotherhood backed Bashaga, uh, the former prime minister. Uh, and you have Debeba, uh, who is kind of the prime minister who is you know, uh, agreed upon by everyone because he is quite weak. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and still there is no end in, in sight for, you know, the current chaotic scene of Libyan politics. It really needs a strong man again. Oh, man, so much unrest, so much disquiet, so much chaos. It's all largely fallout from the 42-year rule of Libya's handsome, charismatic, <laughs> <laughs> and pretty batshit crazy dictator, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. You know, he was my favorite. He was my favorite dictator of all time. Well, because he made you laugh more than any dictator. 
<laughs> we have a saying in Arabic, which means that you should collect wisdom in a, from the mouth of the insane. So for me, he really personified that <laughs> proverb. <laughs> well, dear listeners, now that we've told the story of the rise and fall of Nasserism, we turn to Gaddafi and other madmen like him who believe themselves to have inherited Nasser's mantle of Arab leadership. Gaddafi's brazen, narcissistic insanity is the stuff of legend. And Eamon, you've got a caravan load of funny anecdotes to illustrate <laughs> just how nuts he was. But more seriously, Gaddafi symbolizes the tragic turn towards unhinged dictatorship, which much of the Arab world underwent in the second half of the Cold War. Gaddafi, Assad, Saleh, Mubarak, Ben Ali, and of course Saddam Hussein, they all stalked the Middle East like undead zombies of Nasser, a nightmare from which the Arab world is still recovering. Dude, Eamon, Gaddafi, he was nuts. <laughs> well, I mean, can you imagine being 27 year old and you become the undisputed leader of a large country like Libya, 1.7 million square kilometers. Well, mostly deserts and underpopulated, but still, like, I mean, with oil. <laughs> well, it certainly went to his head. I don't know what was inside that head of his, but there was a <laughs> lot of crazy stuff. During the reading I, I've been doing, preparing for this episode, I kept thinking over and over, wow, I mean, how in God's name could a man like this maintain rule over a whole country for 42 years? I mean, he, how is this possible, Eamon? You know what? Actually, I looked at this throughout history that insane and unhinged rulers tend actually to last longer. And there are good examples throughout history, including in North Africa, Al-Hakim Bi'amrullah, the Fatimid Caliph. You know, he was insane. And one of his anecdotes is that he ordered all of the people of Egypt to shave one eyebrow and keep the other one. So, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and people complied. And he lasted long because just like every insane and unhinged ruler, people are always afraid. They are so unpredictable. People don't know how. You see, you know, if you have the classical ruler, the classical leader, you know how to maneuver around them. You know how to outmaneuver them. But when you have an insane person who could just, you know, uh, turn the entire table with the chessboard on it, you don't know how to deal with them. So this is why they last longer. People don't know how to deal with them. They are so unpredictable. Well, certainly that was true of, uh, of uh, Colonel Gaddafi. And this is how I want to frame the episode, really. I mean, in our last episode, we covered the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War. And we said that those wars marked the demolition of Nasserism, uh, the demolition of the dream of pan-Arabism, and that the first generation of post-colonial Arab Republicans were thoroughly discredited. And when I'm thinking about Gaddafi, I'm thinking, you know, the Arab world, in a way, following its defeats to Israel and the smashing of its prevailing ideological framework, after this, the Arab world kind of went nuts. Indeed. And Gaddafi symbolizes it perfectly. It's almost like Gaddafi personified the mental breakdown that the Arab world was undergoing. Indeed. Oh, my God. When you say he went nuts, he went 
nuts in terms of every variety pistachios almonds cashews everything <laughs> you can imagine also it's interesting that you know th- this whole series we've been talking about the, a period of arab and middle eastern history through which gaddafi grew up he is really the product of everything that we've discussed he grew up you know after the ottoman empire had collapsed after the first world war changed the the map of the middle east after all of these trends became firmly established so gaddafi is the results of all of this history, in a way. Indeed. And this is why I think he is the product, to, to, to an extent, he is the product of the overhyped rhetoric of Nasserism and of Arab nationalism. Yeah, you told me that you, you think he sort of symbolizes a continuation of Nasserism in a more radical mode. Indeed. The problem with uh, Gaddafi was his, uh, apart from his insanity, was his excessive narcissism. That is for sure. The man was, I think he was certifiable. I mean, honestly, you've got so many great stories in our conversation leading up to this episode, man. I just laughed so much. The problem is that we have to also understand that the story of how he became the leader of Libya is as interesting, actually, as how he uh, was able to continue to rule Libya for 42 years. Yes, and b- but before we get to the story of Gaddafi, let's talk about Libya, as we are wont to do this series, uh, by going uh, far back into history. Libya, you know, well, the question is, of course, what is Libya? The word Libya uh, for the ancients was really the word they used for all of Africa outside of Egypt. So it was an extremely broad term, Libya. Uh, ancient Libya appears in Herodotus, the father of history, the ancient, will you call him the father of lies? Yeah, Amen. I call him the father of lies. <laughs> <laughs> He mentions Libya. He says, quote, The people who inhabit Libya are four, and no more than four. Two of these people are indigenous, and two of them are not. The Libyans, who live in the north, and the Ethiopians, who live in the south, are both indigenous, while the Phoenicians and the Greeks are immigrants. So this shows very clearly that Libya meant much more than what it means to us today, all of Africa outside Egypt. So when Herodotus talks about Libyans, he's referring to the people we know as the Berbers. We, we haven't talked much about the Berbers, Amen, in Conflicted, but they are a very important people, especially in the history of the Islamic world. I mean, yeah, that, when we talk about the Berbers, we talk about, you know, a variety of tribes, you know, from stretching from Egypt, from the, you know, the oasis of Siwa, all the way to Mauritania. And it encompasses so many of them. There are the Babas of the mountains of the north in Algeria and in Morocco. And there are the Tuaregs who, you know, straddled the um, Great Sahara uh, to the south of the uh, coast. And then you have the uh, coastal Babas, you know, like the people of Tobruk, you know, which is known as Saranaika, I mean, and the people of uh, uh, Tripoli. And, the, and, and then you have, you know, the Babas who were the Numidians, you know, going around, you know, in Tunisia. So there are so many of these tribes, you know, Zanata, Sanhaja, you know, Kutama. Uh, we could go on and on and on about like in you know, how many Berbers and Tmazig as they are known. Uh, to, you know, they don't call themselves Berbers, by the way. They call themselves the Tmazig people. The free people. It means the free people. Exactly. They refuse the, you know, uh, the word Berber because this is what the Romans gave them. Well, in fact, the Greeks called them Berber, and it's the same word as barbarian. Exactly. <laughs> they, they just called them the barbarians, which is not very flattering. Because for the Greeks, anyone outside of Greece is barbaric. <laughs> That's how they <laughs> saw it. 
Berber tribes have inhabited the land that we now call Libya for at least 12,000 years, and they're mentioned in Egyptian records uh, as cavalry officers in the Egyptian army for some period, and even at one point, they conquered Egypt and became pharaohs for about 200 years. There was a Berber dynasty overseeing Egypt. So they're a very ancient people. Uh, the Her Herodotus specifically talks about a tribe known as the Garamantes, a large Berber tribal confederation based in what is now the Fezzan in southwestern Libya. They had cities, they had advanced irrigation, and they formed extensive trade networks across the Sahara to the south. So we're talking about a serious people, really, uh, that have played a big role in history. The next category that uh, Herodotus mentions, Ethiopians, was his word for black Africans in general. They don't really fall into this podcast uh, because, you know, Libya is mainly Berber and Arab. However, Colonel Gaddafi did fancy himself to be the leader of all Africa and formed close ties with a lot of African countries. Ah, yeah. He called himself the king of kings of Africa. Typical narcissism, honestly. <laughs> uh, finally, the two non-indigenous peoples, Greeks and, uh, and Phoenicians. So the Greeks founded the city of Cyrene in, in eastern Libya. Uh, and, and that city gave its name to the whole region, which was known in classical antiquity as Cyrenaica. Uh, and this was a major urban center of the Eastern Mediterranean, and it particularly had a huge Jewish population. Uh, Cyrene had tens of thousands or even a couple hundred thousand Jews at the time of Christ. I mean, really a, quite a remarkable fact, because you know, back, back then Jews were, were widespread across the Mediterranean world. The city of Cyrene is perhaps best known because it's the place where Simon of Cyrene came from. Uh, this is the man who, according to the gospel accounts, carried Christ's cross for him on his way to Golgotha before the crucifixion. Now this, Amen, uh, bear with me, this is a random, but I think quite a fun digression. So Simon of Cyrene became a very important figure in what's called Gnosticism right, an early form of Christianity considered heretical by the Orthodox churches, which, among other things, denied the materiality of Christ's body. Now, stay with me, Amen, here. So, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who compiled a compendium of heresies in the late 2nd century AD, so about 150 years after Christ, he described the beliefs of one of these Gnostic groups, the Basilides. He said, they, this is what they believed, Christ himself did not suffer. Rather, a certain Simon of Cyrene was compelled to carry his cross for him. It was he who was ignorantly and erroneously crucified, being transfigured by God so that he might be thought to be Jesus. Amen. Why do I find that so interesting? Because that's what the Islamic belief is. I know, isn't that? And that's, that's <laughs> how the, the majority interpretation of the Quranic verses about the crucifixion go, that Jesus wasn't crucified, that someone was transformed to look like Jesus, uh, and he was crucified instead. So this, this, this belief, this idea, may have originated amongst uh, Gnostic Christians in Cyrene. I, I just think that's amazing. Interesting. Anyway, so... Eventually, Cyrenaica, this is eastern Libya, was conquered by the Persians, incorporated into their empire, and ruled as a part of Egypt, and then as a part of Alexander's empire, and so on. So it was basically, for many, many centuries, a faraway outpost of Egypt. This is eastern Libya. The Carthaginians, these are people who originated in, in modern Lebanon, 
They founded three cities in what is now Western Libya. And because there were three of them, the Greeks called the area Tripolitania, i.e. the land of three cities. Uh, and Though the cities were not Greek, they were Carthaginian. Modern-day Tripoli is one of those cities. The Carthaginians were an extremely powerful imperial uh, power. They uh, subjugated the Berbers, who sometimes revolted. It was quite a chaotic time, I think. Eventually, the Romans crushed the Carthaginians. They incorporated Tripolitania into their empire, which became part of a province of Africa, as they called this province, based in modern-day Tunisia. So from that point on, Western Libya was basically always in the orbit of Tunis. What's the main point here? What we think of as Libya was never a single unified political entity until the 20th century. Indeed. Modern Libya is the cobbling together of three regions that were always marginal parts of other larger polities, Tunis and Egypt, basically. Actually, everything you said, Thomas, is absolutely accurate to this day. To this day, I, you, know, you can tell that Eastern Libyans and Western Libyans don't see eye to eye, whether regarding politics, regarding, you know, traditions, you know, even, uh, you know, dishes and culture and, you know, cuisine and all of that. I mean, both sides of Libya are not only just separated by a massive desert between them and the long coast, but also by, uh, you know, centuries of being attached to two different political entities. Right. Okay. So much for ancient history. Let's talk about Islamic Libya. Uh, the, the Arab conquest came to Libya as it came to all of North Africa shortly after the death of the prophet. But the Berbers, they strongly resisted the Arabs, didn't they? You know, Thomas, the story of the Muslim conquest of North Africa is so fascinating. It took 50 years, actually 55 years, and it is the story of conquest, reconquest, re-reconquest, and re-re-reconquest, because the Berbers kept pushing the Arabs back and kept defeating them and kept pushing them back. But the Arabs were so persistent. No, we're coming back. So in the end, the Berbers just got sick of, of it, and they said to the Arabs, what would it take for you to just get lost? So they said, well, I mean, convert to Islam. Here, that's it. We convert to Islam. We're all changing our names. That's it. We're all Muhammad and Abdullah and Abdul Aziz and everything. That's it. Leave <laughs> us alone now. <laughs> so this is the story of how Islam came to North Africa. Does that mean that to this day Berbers have a reputation? Maybe a bit like the Pashtuns, actually, of, of being Muslims, of being pious Muslims, but in a way being Berber first? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is no question that the uh, Berber identity was so strong and it will actually carry on in later years into uh, Andalusia and the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. Um, you know, the armies that went to conquer were two separate armies, one is a Berber Muslim and one is an Arab Muslim. From the beginning, they had their separate armies, their separate entities, their separate identity, you know, and they uh, remained like this for a very long time. We're spending all this time talking about Berbers, but in a way, we shouldn't be because Libya, amongst all those North African places, was the most Arabized, though this happened later than the conquests themselves. Uh, in the 11th century, two notoriously riotous Arabian <laughs> tribes, one of them from the Nejd, you know, from the heartland of Saudi Arabia, they came to the land that is now Libya, and they they didn't um, they didn't really make themselves so welcome, did they? <laughs> Indeed, the Banu Hilal and the Banu Salim. 
the Beni Halal and the Benu Salim. So who are the Benu Hilal and Benu Salim? I mean, they are Najdi tribes uh, from Arabia, and they were actually contracted by the Fatimid Caliph at that time in order uh, for uh, to use them as mercenaries against rebels in uh, Tunisia, in modern-day Tunisia. And... You know, oh boy, what they what did they do to North Africa? I mean, they laid waste not only to the rebels but to Carthage uh, and to Tunis and Kairawan and all of these cities um, that were rebelling. And then they settled in Libya, and they're settling in Libya. Although some of them, when they wanted to go back to Najd, actually they settled in Sinai. And actually, the Bedouins of Sinai and the Bedouins of Libya were always known to be notorious. Sometimes they were pirates or brigands or highway gangs. I mean, they were not exactly exemplary citizens, let's put it this way. Um, and funny enough, our subject for this episode today, Colonel Gaddafi himself, is from Banu Hilal. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the Qadhafa tribe, uh, from which he gets his surname, uh, were, were among the Beni Halal. And, and a few hundred years after the Beni Halal and Banu Sulaim came uh, and conquered Libya, uh, the famous North African polymath Ibn Khaldun, in his potted history of the region, still rem- recalled their arrival with great um, sadness. He said, it was at this point that our civilization, that our irrigation, that our great wealth, it was undermined. Agriculture declined, and we became a more uh, sort of backwards, uh, rather chaotic collection of city-states, always warring with each other. He blamed the Beni Halal, i.e., in a way, Colonel Gaddafi's grandfathers. <laughs> <laughs> so from that point on, Libya is something of a backwater to history. Uh, obviously, it fell within the Ottoman Empire to some extent, although it was sort of marginal. Uh, a dynasty of uh, of Turkic leaders called the Karamanli ruled it uh, when it became infamously piratical. In fact, the first ever foreign war that the United States uh, fought very early on in its history were called the Barbary Wars against, uh, basically, against Libyan city-states who were, har- who were harassing shipping in the Mediterranean. So we just want to skip ahead, really, to when uh, Libya enters the modern period, and that's in October 1912, when the Ottomans signed a treaty with Italy, inaugurating really what is the most, in my view, the most horrendous period of European colonization in any uh, Middle Eastern or Arab country. You know what, Thomas? Uh, our image of Italy and the Italians always that they are the easygoing people, you know, uh, they're just busy drinking, eating, having a good time, dancing, concerts, you know, and just falling in love. You know, amore, you know, that, that's what the Italians are. <laughs> But that's not the Italy or the Italians that the Libyans experienced in 1912 and beyond. Oh my God, when the Libyans, when the Libyans saw the troops landing in Tobruk, in Zwara, in uh, Tripoli, in uh, Masrata, I mean, that was like the gates of hell opening. Especially from the 1920s when, when Mussolini came to power and, and he decided to make an example, really, of Libya. Libya became... Uh, his his sort of petri dish of Italian fascist imperial power. Indeed, I mean, you know, in Benghazi and Tripoli and other places, you know, there was this uh, Italian fascist tradition 
uh, of hanging people, just as an example. So they will hang them in the public squares and the streets, and then they will take photos and make these photos the postcards. So if an Italian uh, immigrants you know, in Libya, settlers, they call them the Italian settlers who settled there, if they want to send a postcard back to their family in Italy, it will be actually the picture of hanged Bedouins. Um, and Mussolini in particular loved to collect these postcards, and he used to love you know, looking at them, basically. It just Wow. <laughs> the fa fascist rule in Libya was ruthless. It was brutal. No Libyan, for example, was allowed any education beyond primary school. And the education that they did receive was explicitly Italianizing. I mean, they were trying to turn them into Italians if possible. Also, as you told me, Eamon, they, they had a network of concentration camps in Libya. General Rodolfo uh, Graziani um, who was, you know, one of the most, you know, brutal and bloody uh, generals of uh, the uh, fascist uh, war machine in Italy? He started the process of what he called concentrating the Bedouins. So he took uh, roughly about seven hundred thousand Bedouins and he put them behind Bob wire like and i mean he actually started the first concentration camps built by fascists in the african continent um so from 1929 onward um you know 700,000 bedouins were uh, concentrated and then when he wanted to cut off uh, the uh, libyan resistance you know led by the senussis which we will talk about later and by omar al-mukhtar you know who is a uh, the national hero of uh, libya uh, he wanted to cut off their uh, support from Egypt because the British, as well as Egyptian Muslims, were, were supporting the resistance against the Italians and the uh, Mussolini fascists. So he used 100,000 Bedouins to build a massive barbed wire wall from the Mediterranean all the way to the desert. And tens of thousands of people died during the construction of that barbed wire um, you know, across the sand. It was a tragedy beyond belief. When the Italians came to Libya, there were one and a half million, you know, Libyans living in uh, Libya. When, you know, by the end of World War Two uh, and the fall of Mussolini in 1943, there were only 800,000 left. Half the population died at the hands of the Italians. That's amazing. Unbelievable. Uh, Omar, uh, you mentioned this man, Omar al-Mukhtar, the Libyan national hero, someone who uh, Gaddafi felt particularly inspired by. Tell us about him and, and the battle of Jebel al-Akhtar. Indeed, I mean, Omar al-Mukhtar is um, one of the uh, followers of the Senussi uh, Sufi Tariqa, and the Senussis were the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. They are Ashraf. Um, you know, we talked about the Hashimites before. They were Hashimites of Libya, and they were leading the resistance against the uh, Italians. And so he was the military commander of that movement. And you know, at you know, even when he uh, advanced in age, even at the age of seventy-one, uh, in 1929, he scored one of his uh, greatest um, achievements. It is a military history, really, and it's uh, still reverberated this day. The reason for that, why? Because in the Battle of Al-Jabal Al-Akhdar and the Battle of the Bridge in the Al-Jabal Al-Akhdar, uh, or the Green Mountain as it's known in Arabic, um, Omar al-Mukhtar and his people did the first thing, you know, that uh, in, in terms of jihadi tactic that is still being used to this day. First of all, it was the last battle in, you know, uh, history where a cavalry charge was successful against a mechanized army. So these are warriors on horses against tanks, basically, I, and they, they succeeded. They won. They won because it was an ambush. Uh, but they won because, thank God for the IEDs they used. It was the first time ever that IEDs were used against tanks 
so where they planted many dynamite uh, charges uh, in that killing field. And when they lured the tanks um, and the armored personnel carrier into that field, the Italian ones, the Libyans then set off all of these um, uh, dynamite charges and that destroyed a few of the tanks and the uh, armored personnel carriers, uh, confused the defenders. And of course, with the cavalry charge, you know, closing on them from four sides, it was a massacre. Um, so that was the last time in modern history, in modern warfare history, that uh, cavalry was able to you know, overrun uh, a mechanized division. A little sliver of Libyan history there that re- resonates to the present because jihadists have taken that that strategy on board ever since. Oh yeah, IEDs everywhere from Afghanistan against the Soviets, you know, from uh, Chechnya against the Russians, uh, from Iraq against the Americans, you know, in Syria against uh, Assad, uh, you know, and uh, so on, so on. So, you know, the use of IEDs now was pioneered by a Libyan leader of the jihad at that time, a 71-year-old Omar al-Mukhtar. Well, as you said, eventually Italian rule came to an end in Libya at the hands of the British, who conquered the country during the Second World War. Well, with the help of the French, they conquered a part of it too. Uh, But it really fell within the British sphere of influence. And after the war, the question arose, what sort of country would Libya become? You know, as we've said, it had never been unified. It had always been split between different competing uh, political centers uh, in West and in East. In the end, the British, through a very confused and confusing uh, sequence of events, uh, oversaw the coming to power of a king of Libya, Idris al-Sanusi. Uh, king Idris, as you said, Eamon, was a Hashemite, just like you know his, his distant, distant quadruple cousins who were ruling <laughs> in Jordan and in, uh, and in Iraq. Uh, he was a Hashemite, a Sharif. He was a British client. He had been in Egypt, which Britain oversaw, from 1922 onwards as a Libyan freedom fighter. Uh, so he had very close ties with the British Empire and the Brit- and British politicians in the Middle East. And on the 24th of December 1951, the United Kingdom of Libya was established, a federal constitutional monarchy. Now, at the time, Libya was literally the poorest country in the world. Its illiteracy rate was 90%. And in the whole country, Eamon, in the whole country, there were only 16 university graduates. Uh, This did not augur well for King Idris's new state. Indeed. I mean, this is the legacy of the Italian colonization. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, it shows basically that, you know, uh, no matter how much the Italians tried, they are not as organized as the British. Because if you look at Egypt next door, the education was far, far better thanks to the British rule there. <laughs> so, but the reality here is that, you know, this is the hand that, you know, Libya was dealt. Um, you know, uh, King Idris comes to power. Um, after many years of fighting against the Italians and then trying to convince the British that it's time for Libya to become independent. And he realized that Libya is in dire state. But thank God. I mean, at the end of the day, the king was praying and praying. And by the way, that king was a saint. I mean, you know, we we have to say from the beginning, that king was truly a saint. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about King Idris as a personality because he is very different from the other leaders of the Arab world at the time, including other monarchs like like King Hussein in Jordan or as you know, as King Faisal in Iraq. He was a very traditional ruler 
in the mode of a holy man, which is an archetype throughout Muslim history, especially North Africa. A holy man, a holy warrior, essentially, who becomes king and rules uh, very religiously, very ascetically. He was a great ascetic. He had a very austere, rather sort of unadorned style of governance. He was very traditional in that sense. Let's put it this way. He was frugal also. I mean, the man was frugal on himself. I mean, he was generous with the Libyan people, but he was frugal on himself and the family uh, and the royal family. And the reason is because basically he really believed that he should not live you know, in great extravagance while the Libyan people are, you know, living in poverty. And as I said, the man, you know, was more concerned with the afterlife than this life. (laughs) So, And and he had a certain humility. For example, he refused to have his face on the currency. Indeed. Uh, He refused to have any monument in the country named after him. This is not typical of Arab leaders at the time. King Idris, you know, you know, even though there were other Hashemite kings across the Arab world, not only you know in the Middle East itself, but also in North Africa. Don't forget that the royal family of Morocco are also Hashemites. Absolutely, who's been you know ruling the um, the kingdom of Morocco since the 1700s. You know, but in in the case of King Idris, being a saint doesn't mean, unfortunately, being a capable ruler because sainthood could be mistaken for weakness. And unfortunately, um, while he commanded the respect of the country, um, the country needed a firmer grip. However, he was lucky also. And he always believed that it was his prayers, you know, that God will send some providence and deliverance to Libya that oil was discovered during his time. That's right. In 1959, oil was discovered in Libya. And this meant, well, many things. First of all, it meant that Libya was no longer as dependent as before on foreign aid. You know, it had been receiving a lot of money from both the British and the Americans, who had a, a big air base in Libya, and, and Libya had become an important node in the American Cold War military sort of world. Uh, so e- Libya no longer needed to rely so much on foreign aid, but it also, sadly, as it does pretty much everywhere, oil money led to increasing corruption uh, throughout the country, and this became endemic towards the end of King Idris's period. Indeed, because, you know, while he commanded respect, he did not command authority, unfortunately. He couldn't keep an eye on everything. And he was started to become, in the later years, distant and distant and distant, as if he doesn't want to rule. Oil really was the watershed moment. So before the discovery of oil, the, the governance in, in Libya was very traditional. King Idris had a very hands-off approach. Uh, he based his rule on the principle of shura, uh, on consensus amongst elites amongst nobles. It was very patriarchal rule, uh, and, and it was focused on the palace, just, just like a kind of traditional, even medieval uh, kind of state. The administration was basically subjected to tribal structures. Power was very diffuse. Political parties were banned. King Idris wanted nothing to do with that sort of modern style of, uh, of politicking. He distrusted democracy immensely. So this is before oil, it was so it was it was traditional it was old school after the discovery of oil in order to manage the industry that built up around it libya was forced to become more centralized and was forced to build more modern state institutions this in the end would play into colonel gaddafi's hands when he decided to launch a revolution there so king idris in a way against his will in order to build up the oil industry created or allowed to be created a state apparatus that then could be turned against him 
Indeed. Well, King Idris was lucky, by the way, in regard to the discovery of oil. He wasn't lucky with his neighbors, especially his neighbors to the uh, east, Egypt, because the Nasserism was in its prime. I mean, the uh, Libyan people were listening to Nasser and thinking, oh, look at this dynamic figure that is standing up against America, against France, against Britain, ag you know, he, against Israel. In a while, our king is just meek and weak and doesn't want to get involved, you know, in all of this war rhetoric that is going on. Unfortunately, um, that played into the group of officers led by Gaddafi, the young, you know, uh, captain in the military and the military communication and intelligence that, you know, in the end uh, decided to overthrow him. And so we have reached Colonel Gaddafi. Uh, according to my reading, uh, Eamon, his birthday is unknown. I mean, he, he at times he said it was 1943, 1941. You, you say it was 1942 for sure. I think, I think though, as a Bedouin, it's, it's possible that his birthday wasn't really recorded. Isn't that right? Yeah, might not have been recorded, but actually, uh, when he uh, launched the coup uh, in 1969, he uh, was described as a 27-year-old. Um, and these were the official records of the uh, Libyan military. So, you know, 1942 is uh, possible. But also, because one of, one of Gaddafi's Egyptian biographers said that Gaddafi was born one year before the fall of Mussolini. Uh, you know, the fall of Mussolini from power. So he fell from power, you know, and fled Rome, um, I think, in 1943. So it is safe to assume that uh, Gaddafi was born 1942. And that corresponds with uh, him being 27-year-old uh, when he led the coup in 1969. So basically, he was born at the very end of the Italian period, at the very beginning of the modern period of Libyan independence under King Idris. So Gaddafi was a thoroughly modern Arab man. He was born a Bedouin uh, to a family in the Qadhafa tribe, uh, born in a small desert village south of Sirt, which is in the western half of, of Libya along the coast. His father was a goat herder, and Gaddafi grew up in a tent. So he was the real deal. And when he ended up going to primary school in Sirt, he had to walk there and sleep the nights during the school week in a mosque because his family remained in the desert. Uh, and in, in it's, at school, he was bullied for being a Bedouin. Uh, and this, this rather scarred Gaddafi, I think. It may be the roots of the narcissistic shell of grandiosity that he began to build up uh, around himself. Family eventually moved to Sebha in the Fazan in the south of Libya, and this is where Gaddafi went to secondary school, and it's at this time that, uh, that Nasser becomes his idol. Uh, he, he claimed later on that he would memorize Nasser's speeches because he loved him so much. Uh, inspired by Nasser, he, would be, he, he began railing against the British and the Americans at school. He sounds like a major pain in the neck, really. And he was expelled uh, and so uh, went to Misrata, uh, where he went to school there. In the end, he landed up in a military college in Benghazi, where a British officer, this is very interesting, described him as, quote, inherently cruel. At one point, Gaddafi hogtied and murdered a young cadet who was accused of homosexual acts, for example. So not a nice guy. This, this is absolutely like, I mean, the same with Saddam Hussein and his uh, childhood, you know, uh, and the same with Stalin and his childhood. It, it's just mirror, mirror image of all of these, uh, you know, uh, famous tyrants. 
traumatized children growing up to inflict trauma on others. It's a classic uh, dynamic. So Gaddafi was insolent, he was opinionated, and he was cruel. But, and this cannot be denied, he was also charismatic, inspiring, and intellectual, though idiotic. But he was intellectual. He believed himself to be a man of ideas. And, and he, he did write. <laughs> he did write books, and he wrote poetry. He, was, he, was, he had intellectual ambitions. And we'll discuss some of his ideas in a little bit. They're particularly ridiculous. You know, Hitler thought of himself as an artist, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, uh, the trouble with artists and intellectuals is when they get power, man, you got to go far away. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. So Gaddafi had long dreamt of, of emulating his idol Nasser and launching a revolution in Libya uh, as long ago as when he was in secondary school. And w- when he uh, finally became a military officer, he created what was called the Revolutionary Command Council. Uh, and they, they began the, the process of, of building up a network of officers uh, to overthrow the government. Though, you know, unlike Nasser's <laughs> similar movement, the, the Gaddafi version was was almost farcical. Absolutely. It was really like, you know, young schoolboys trying to play politics. And, uh, you know, and actually, like, you know, they were planning, how do we do it? It, 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 in fa- it was farcical. In fact, uh, they had to postpone the coup twice because uh, of, of hijinks that ensued. The first one, the first date that they'd chosen was the 12th of March, 1969. But they realized on the day that the famous Egyptian singer Um Khalthum was performing a concert in Libya that day, a benefit concert for the Palestinian cause. So they thought, well, that's not really a good day to launch the coup. <laughs> so they postponed it. Uh, Very they, post- they postponed it for a couple of weeks at the end of March. But then someone in Libyan intelligence got wind of the plot. And so King Idris uh, was sent to Tobruk uh, for British troops to protect him. So again, Gaddafi canceled. So, so far, they're not having good luck. Indeed. However, um, in September, they got their break because the king went for an extensive medical treatment in Turkey. And actually, the king realized that his conditions uh, were, you know, really severe. And so he was going to send uh, a telegram and he sent a telegram uh, informing the palace and the government at the time of his abdication in favor of his son, uh, Prince Al-Hassan. However, who received you know uh, that telegram was the uh, the communication and intelligence division of the Libyan military and who was in charge you know in that day was Gaddafi <laughs> so he received that and he was thinking great come on guys now is our moment mobilize mobilize and so and and so they went and they launched their coup the coup itself was was pretty ridiculous at one point Gaddafi who was in a jeep leading the other plotters, you know, he turned left, they turned right, they got separated, they had to come back uh, to each other. You know, it, it wasn't an auspicious beginning uh, <laughs> to his uh, 42 years in office. Indeed. And at the end of the day, you know, many um, historians in the Arab world, they say, well, look, um, he was confident enough to launch the coup because he knew the king wasn't going to resist uh, that the British garrisons in Libya are not going to, um, you know, fight because the king will say, well, look, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to fight. I don't want to uh, be restored to power. And really, you know, the British actually consulted with King Idris. They said, like, I mean, if you tell us right now that we should, you know, counter the coup, we will counter the coup. King Idris refused. He refused outright to counter the coup. 
I think that rather suited the British, uh, to be honest, because by 1969, they were no longer able or really willing to employ their military to shore up their Middle Eastern allies. Their empire was on the way out. Um, but yes, indeed, on the 1st of September 1969, uh, a bloodless coup unfolded in Libya. The King's Guard did not intervene. There he was, Captain Gaddafi, soon to be self-designated Colonel Gaddafi, uh, 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 in charge of Libya, which at that point had no real sense of unity, really, or nationhood. As we'd said, King Idris's rule was very traditional, power was very diffuse. The regions largely determined the identity of Libyan citizens. So the country was like a blank canvas for him to paint his weirdest political and economic and even religious ideas upon. Oh dear, and what an affliction. I think, in hindsight, I think the British, you know, regretted deeply not countering that coup and <laughs> reinstating King Idris <laughs> as the king. <laughs> Fifteen years later, they would have said, why didn't we do it? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, for the first year or so after the coup, you know, no one knew for sure what was going to happen. Uh, there was a brief moment of, of, of pure narcissism in 1970. Uh, Gaddafi had a jamboree in Tripoli where leaders from around the Arab world gathered to celebrate the evacuation of American troops from Libya. Gaddafi had expelled them. And during this jamboree, Gaddafi turned to Nasser, who was his idol, remember, and suddenly uh, in anger threatened to expose him as a coward and a hypocrite if he didn't move faster toward Arab unity. In the midst of all of these Arab leaders, he, he, he you know, shouted at Nasser. Uh, a sign of things to come, I think. Oh, yeah. Shouting at other leaders is going to be his tradition. And we're going to talk about it, <laughs> you know, in a few moments. But the man was unhinged and the signs were there from early on. A few months after this jamboree in the desert, Nasser died. Uh, and uh, this changed everything. Earlier, Gaddafi had said that Libya's oil wealth could be at Nasser's disposal to help create Arab unity. But after Nasser's death, Gaddafi decided that he was the guardian of his legacy. Uh, and he, he made it his, his life's mission to bring the Arabs together, unite Muslims against the West, all sorts of stuff. Uh, he, he became, I don't, I don't, how do we even describe this man? Because, you see, we can't because of his unpredictability, because he was unhinged. It, it's very difficult to, because you see, the mood swings were so frequent and violent that forget a whiplash, you could be decapitated. <laughs> I mean, this is how, how how violent these mood swings were. You know, the, the issue here is that he was so narcissistic in his own mind that he didn't believe that there was a greater man ever living at that time. He wanted to be the new Che Guevara. So what did he do? He started, you know, supporting all these revolutionary groups and terrorist groups, the Basque, the ETA, IRA, uh, the Red Brigades, you know, uh, you know, he, he, you know, the, he left no revolutionary group or terrorist group or uncertain group in the world he didn't support uh, with weapons, with money and everything. And then he started engaging in terrorism, you know, uh, bombing nightclubs and bombing airliners and, you know, masterminding all these things and then after that he started you know uh, picking up fight with uh, other Arab leaders and especially Sadat 
You know, his own neighbor. President Sadat, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat. Which is, by the way, my favorite Egyptian president ever. Yes, anyway. as you always remind <laughs> us. So, you know, my favorite quote from Sadat, when, you know, when he was told about how Gaddafi is you know, spending hours and hours insulting him, uh, you know, during long, long-winded speeches, um, you know, just like Castro and uh, Chavez, like, you know, Gaddafi had the uh, tendency to speak for hours. So, you know, all what Sadat said, you know, while he was smoking his pipe, he said, said, and why do I care about with this, you know, uh, mad boy of Libya? Think of me, the mad boy <laughs> of Libya. And you know, the, the way it's said, in, it is said in Arabic is even more. He said, Al-Wadil Magnum Bita Libya. I mean, you know, it, it, when, when, you, when you hear it in Arabic, it's even more, you know, <laughs> insulting. So Gaddafi didn't like it. And that's why Gaddafi celebrated the day that uh, Sadat was assassinated by Islamists. And Gaddafi also wanted to always stay against the Americans. So um, when the Americans started to support the Afghans against uh, the Soviets, he supported the Soviets against the Afghans and he banned in Libya any mention of jihad or mujahideen or anything. And then when the Arabs, you know, basically like, and they wanted to um, have nothing to do in terms of support of uh, the Khomeini in Iran, uh, he actually was uh, supporting Khomeini until he fell out, you know, basically with them uh, again. And then... He, in terms of foreign policy, he was always swinging from one end to the other, but it is always seeking that recognition as a revolutionary, as someone who stands against the West. But he always chose the wrong causes, the wrong time, the wrong place, and the wrong players, always. One way of understanding Gaddafi, I think, which helps helps to sort of make sense of, of this madness, is that he was at heart a Bedouin. For example, he, he styled himself as a modern, hypermodern, ra- radical revolutionary on the one hand, but on the other hand, he also considered himself to be a defender of Islam, as he understood it. After he came to power, Sharia law was integrated into the Libyan legal system for the first time. Zakat was made obligatory, you know, the, the, the charitable tax that Islam imposes. Uh, and, and so he had, on the one hand, he had this kind of traditional Islamic... Um, uh, piety. I don't even know if that's the right word. But on the other hand, in 1973, he announces a popular revolution. So all existing laws are repealed. All anti-revolutionary, quote, perverts and deviators, as he called them, were weeded out. Bureaucrats and the bourgeoisie in general were targeted for elimination. So this is very sort of Maoist, Chinese-style cultural revolution stuff. Uh, but but then at the same time, all foreign ideas contrary to the Quran were to be destroyed. So he he said, "quote Trample under your feet any bourgeois bureaucrat, tear up all important books that don't support Arabism, Islam, socialism, and progress, burn and destroy <laughs> all curricula that do not express the truth." So Arabism, Islam, socialism, and progress. How are you gonna? <laughs> How are you going to balance these four pillars, uh, uh, you know, in, in a stable structure? And that's why, you know, he wrote that you know, ridiculous book of his trying to mimic <laughs> Mao, which is, you know, the, the Green Book. The Green Book, yeah, published in 1975. I have read The Green Book. <laughs> How did you go through real... it without being traumatized? <laughs> it's a real mind scrambler, I tell you. You see, uh, my, my favorite quote from there, when he said, it is important for, you know, for the woman to advance to position of power regardless of her gender. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You see, this is the strange, that strange combination of hyper-modern and hyper-traditional. It's like a modern Bedou. It's very strange. I mean, 
<laughs> I mean, it was a roller coaster. Let's put it this way. Uh, by the way, he wrote a book later called, uh, you know, Al Kitab Al Abiyad, you know, the uh, white book, and I will tell, uh, speak about it later. But you know, the issue here is that uh, the man started to behave pretty much like you know the Fatimid Caliph Al Hakim Amrullah, who ordered people to shave one eyebrow, as I said before, and leave the other. He started to come up with the weirdest laws. For example. He will come with a decree. Um, he will say that, you know, why do we have shampoo which contains eggs? Eggs is the food of the masses. And therefore, we should get rid of every shampoo that contain egg. So people displaying obedience to him, they will take all of these shampoo <laughs> containers and they will pour in the, pouring them on the streets, you know, in obedience. And then he said... Uh, in 1986, I remember I saw this on TV when I was young. Um, he said uh, that music is haram and the music is forbidden in Islam. I mean, why do we have music? And so he ordered all the musical instruments in Libya to be destroyed and the people gathered in the public squares and they were destroying the guitars and the drums and the pianos and everything. But then six months later, he ordered, he said, why there is no music in the country? <laughs> you know, bring back the concerts again. I mean, come on. Okay, and uh, you know, I'll give you another one. He really was, you know, you know, he was pretending to be, you know, a pious Muslim. Uh, as you know, Islam, you know, in the Sunni sense, which is what followed by the majority of Muslims, uh, is based on the Quran, you know, which is the equivalent of the Jewish Torah or the Bible, and the Hadith, which is the equivalent maybe of the Talmudic tradition. But it, it is the statements of the Prophet Muhammad on uh, the Quran. And so, you know, it is accompanying the Quran. And, you know, it is understood that it is the two pillars upon which Islamic tradition and faith and creed stands. This is something accepted by all Muslims, you know, uh, under the Sunni umbrella. So uh, he then came up with this insane idea that no, 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 only the Quran because, you know, Muhammad was just a messenger. He was just like, you know, the guy, he got the message, he gave it to us. So why do we have to reveal what he has to say? I'm a man and he's a man. Oh, and that's a real that, that's a real narcissistic gaslighting right there. <laughs> exactly. He couldn't believe. He said, why do we say in the Adhan, uh, you know, uh, I bear witness there is no God no, uh, but God and Muhammad is his messenger. Just keep God there and keep Muhammad out of it. <laughs> he wanted to just say there's no God but God and Gaddafi is God. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. And then went further than that, you know, by banning the Hadith, you know, for a few years he banned them. And so Muslim scholars from Saudi Arabia and Egypt and everything declared him to be a heretic. And he was angry about that. And he said, I understand Islam more than they do. Okay, okay, Gaddafi, just calm down. Um, <laughs> and then he started to come up with the weirdest you know, of economic ideas, you know, from um, establishing what he called the Great River of, of Libya, um, you know, which wasted all of Libya's aquifers, um, you know, pumping them into the sea. I don't know for what reason, for a great <laughs> agricultural project, but actually it was a failure, $27 billion failure, let's put it this way. Uh, and then he went on to, uh, after the project started to fail, you know, in 1996, he was talking to the Libyan people. He was saying, you know, you know what, my fellow Libyans, Libya is so uninhabitable. I mean, there is hardly any water, it's too hot, it's just desert, there is nothing there for us. Yes, there is a little bit of oil, but that's it. You know what? How about we give every Libyan $10,000 a month and you know, let them just go somewhere else, find somewhere else to live, and we close Libya. <laughs> it's not a restaurant. It's not like you know, I mean, a failed business. And, and, and this actually shows that you know, he was dealing with Libya 
you know, as if it was a, you know, a, just a group of tribes, you know, wandering in the desert. What was he, Moses? And, you know, the Libyans are the Israelites. You know, one of my favorites, you know, is that how he altered the name of Libya. Oh, yes. The, he, he gave Libya the the longest. <laughs> it's a real mouthful. Okay, so... Say it in Arabic. I love hearing you say it Okay, so so basically, I love how Sadat used to say it. You know, so he was he will say... Sadat, he will say, um, okay, what what did he name this his country, this mad boy of Libya? Ah, yeah. You know, Al-Jamahiriya, Libya, Al-Arabiya, take a breath. Al-Shaabiya, Al-Ishtarakiya, take a breath again. Al-Uzma. So, you know, so which is means that the Republic of the masses of the Libyan socialist Arab, uh, great, uh, you know, republic or something like that. I mean, it, 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 the great socialist people's Libyan Arab Jamahiriya. Yeah. That's what it was called. <laughs> and I want to talk about this word Jamahiriya because it's it's it it symbolizes much of what we're saying because it's a nonsense word. I mean, already it's a it's a word it's a word that. That he made up. Yeah. Uh, it, it's sort of. I mean, the word jumhur in Arabic is is ma- the mass, a mass of people. Uh, so a, a republic is jumhuria, a, a mass. You know, the the people's state. And, and the, the but the plural of jumhur is jamahir. So he was like, no, we're not just a republic. <laughs> we're like a. A republics. We're like many. We're a huge republic. It's it's insane. It's, it's a super so republic. Narcissistic. A super, <laughs> super republic. republic. <laughs> the great socialist people's Libyan Arab super republic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such a mouthful, and you know, and not to mention the other antiques, like you know, living in a tent, having only female bodyguards. By the way, you know, which what was that about? <laughs> I have no idea. Only female bodyguards. But what what about his infamous, you know, hashish smoking? Oh I th- my! I think God. he was. I think a lot of this can be explained by the fact that the man was high as a kite most of the time. <laughs> high as a kite, more like high as a satellite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will tell you. I tell you a story of what happened. You remember I told you about how he's always had spats with other Arab leaders. One of the most famous one, which was because of his high, uh, you know, and because he was high at that time in Hashish, he had a spat with King Abdullah. King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. This is, in fact, when Abdullah was still crown prince. This is in 2003. So this was in Egypt. And, uh, you know, and Mubarak, President Mubarak of Egypt was the uh, chairman of the summit. And when it came time to introduce Muammar Gaddafi, <laughs> he, you know, so he said, this is, you know, the uh, now I have the pleasure to introduce, and of course he he pulled he pulled the big paper in order to read it, you know, uh, the dear brother Muammar al-Qaddafi, the leader of the Great Revolution of the September of 1969, you know, the King of Kings of Africa, the Dean of the Arab Leaders, <laughs> <laughs> the the Supreme Guide of the Libyan Revolution, you know, <laughs> and 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 the Imam of all Muslims. You know, on yeah, brother Muammar, you know, <laughs> the floor is yours. So, and he started talking rubbish about King Fahad. You know, the at the time King Fahad was having a stroke. So King Abdullah as the prince regent uh, and the crown prince was there. And so he started talking rubbish about, you know, how King Fahad was afraid of Saddam and how King Fahad was running to the Americans to ask them to come to defend him during the Iraq uh, invasion of Kuwait. And that's when King Abdullah lost it. Well, this it, it climaxed with uh, with Gaddafi saying the Saudi king would cooperate with the devil himself to protect his kingdom. Indeed. Well, this was too much for Abdullah. Yeah. So, you know, he said to him, you know, 
you do not talk about things that do not concern you. You know, uh, he said, we, you know, we, uh, you know, uh, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, we are Arabs and we are Muslims and we do not, you know, uh, ally with the devil. And speaking of the devil, who brought you to power? You know, he was talking about who brought you to power. He was accusing him of being, you know, a, uh, a, stoo a stooge of the uh, Soviets and, you know, others and, uh, and other colonial powers. And so, uh, so, you know, so he said to him, don't lie. You know, otherwise, you know, the grave is bef before you. What he meant is that, you know, if you keep lying, you know, one day you will die and he will answer before God. So, you know, uh, Gaddafi was, you know, laughing to his delegation and he said, what is this old man is saying? I don't understand what he's saying. He, he was making fun of the uh, Bedouin accent of uh, King Abdullah and also making fun of, I can't hear what he's saying. So two or three years passed. And uh, there was the uncovering of a plot by Gaddafi to kill King Abdullah because he felt that he was insulted by King Abdullah. You know, it shows the vindictiveness of this guy. So they met in a summit in Qatar this time. You know, well, you know King Abdullah was there. Now he is a king. And uh, Gaddafi is there again uh, in the summit. And uh, the uh, Emir of Qatar was speaking. And suddenly Gaddafi interrupted him. Uh, and he started talking on the microphone. He was saying, Abdullah, Abdullah. You know, he was calling the king. Uh, he said, Abdullah, Abdullah, you know, why are we fighting? You know, why are we? And he was talking really heavy. He was under the influence of hashish. Why are we fighting? Why are we arguing? You know, uh, you know, how about you visit me? I visit you. And we sort this thing between us, you know. And then he started looking around <laughs> and he was wearing sunglasses. He was saying, why am I here? You know, and he was looking around. Why am I here? Um how come I'm here? I'm the king of kings of Africa. I am the dean of the Arab leaders. I am the imam of all Muslims. And my international status doesn't allow me to be in a gathering like this. And then he finished his speech. We all watched this in horror and we were thinking, God save Libya <laughs> because this guy... <laughs> I feel bad for those other Arab leaders, those other Muslim leaders. I mean, can you imagine having to sit opposite Colonel Gaddafi and treat him with respect? I mean, my God. But then came the final insult to everyone. It's the UN speech. That UN speech was hilarious. Even the translator gave up and left the auditorium altogether. Couldn't keep up at all. <laughs> Tell us the story. Well, in that speech, he was angry that people were falling asleep. He was saying to everyone in the UN, in the UN uh, uh, main hall, addressing the delegates. He said, "Why are you sleeping, huh? Didn't you have enough rest? You know, uh, you know, am I too boring for you?" <laughs> so, and then he was holding his new book. The White Book. Now, The White Book is one of the funniest reads you'll ever have. He's talking about, you know, a new solution for peace in the Middle East. Uh, it is called Isratine. So, Isratine <laughs> is a country that is both Israel and Palestine. Isratine. So, Isratine. <laughs> so, Isratine is, you know, the new country that will usher in a new era of peace in the Middle East. And he said that this is the white book, it's all there. And then he threw the white book at Ban Ki-moon, the second of the UN at the time. And you can hear the people in the auditorium taking a deep breath and... Like, you know, they couldn't believe what he did. He, how can you throw a book, you know, at the face of Ban Ki-moon? And then he grabbed the UN charter, he tear it apart, 
you know, in front of everyone. He said, this is from 1945. It's not fit for this uh, uh, world anymore. And then he started, you know, talking about, you know, uh, the uh, all the international conspiracies and how, you know, uh, the world is going into rubbish. And that's it. Like, you know, I mean, he was done. But after, you know, many hours in which, you know, several interpreters, you know, in many languages, like, you know, basically were drafted in, you know, to relieve the other interpreters who were having <laughs> nervous breakdown. <laughs> well, I mean, Eamon, you could speak forever <laughs> about uh, Colonel Gaddafi and his madness. I think we, we, we let's take him a little bit seriously for a while. I'd like to go back to his Green Book, which, as I said, was published in 1975, and which he considered to be a blueprint, not just for the solution to Libya's problems, but he believed he had cracked the secret to governance everywhere. And and when you read this book, you realize that the man was a Bedouin. And I don't actually mean to insult Bedouins. I, I've, I've met Bedouin. They're, very, they're charming people, lovely people. But if you remember, dear listener, back in episode two of this series, we talked about uh, the difference between al-Bedawa and al-Hadara, the Bedouin and the civilized man. And, you know, Gaddafi was a symbol or a, a, a son of al-Badawa. He was a Bedouin. And he seemed to be animated to some extent by a kind of instinctive hatred for the city, the things of the city, state institutions, uh, you know, hierarchical organizations that weren't just, you know, surrounded by him with him at the center. So the Gre- he, he presents the Green Book as, quote, the ultimate solution to the problem of the proper ruling apparatus. We're already in the world of 1970s radicalism. It's a bit, it's a bit nuts. And his, his solution is basically this. Abolish all state institutions so that society can rule itself directly. So he, he's really trying to create a stateless society. He wants to go back in some modern way to the way that Bedouin life has always been. No state, just people kind of doing their own thing in subservience to a stronger patriarchal personality. Uh, now, for this reason, he opposed all parliamentary or representative democracy as false. He opposed political parties. He said that they led to deceit, to internal discord, and to partisanship. In fact, and this I find fascinating, he wasn't wrong about this, really. And one of the things about reading the Green Book is every now and then a sentence will jump out at you as like, Oh, that's actually true. And then you don't know what to think. Maybe Gaddafi was a genius. Who knows? This is what this is what it's like to be in conversation with a narcissist. He said in parliamentary democracies, the opposition party must minimize the government's achievements and cast doubt on the government's plans, even though those plans may be beneficial to society. Consequently, the interests and programs of the society become the victims of the party's struggle for power. Such struggle is therefore politically, socially, and economically destructive to society, despite the fact that it creates political activity. Anyone who lives in a postmodern democracy can see the truth in this, where you have an opposition party that must rubbish everything that the government's doing, a government is constantly having to defend itself, and in the meantime, society just fragments. But from, as an outsider, as a Bedouin, he's looking at this process and he says, this is just corruption. This is too complicated. Why, why is it so complicated? Listen, <laughs> listen, my friends, it's simple. Just do what I say. Exactly. <laughs> All will be well. <laughs> exactly. So instead of this sort of 
democracy as we understand it, he advocated direct democracy. He he thought, and he he created these things. What are they called? The people's uh, uh, yeah, councils. the people's councils, the majalis shabia. Everything would be ruled according to what he called the third universal theory. He says the third universal theory now provides us with a practical approach to direct democracy. The problem of democracy in the world will finally be solved. It will be replaced by its true definition, the supervision of the people by the people. <laughs> I mean, you read it, you start losing your mind. He says the people become the instrument of government and the dilemma of democracy in the world is conclusively solved. So he thought that he's going to create these people's councils, and he did. They were all around around Libya. He even had these sort of revolutionary councils that were that were in charge of of dispensing with justice, revolutionary justice against you know uh, against criminals or whatever you know, sinners against the revolution. And he thought it would just all run itself. At the same time, he believed in radical equality. He did not believe that some people should have more than other people, that some people should have money while other people don't have money. So he said the ultimate solution in the problem of inequality in society is to abolish the wage system. <laughs> this would emancipate people from the bondage of wage slavery and revert to natural laws which defined relationships before the emergence of classes. So for this, for example, meant that farmers were no longer allowed to hire laborers to help them run their farms because they weren't allowed to pay anyone a wage. It was illegal to pay a wage to someone in Libya. So what do you suppose happened to the farms? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, again, we come back to you know the problem of insane people trying to experiment with people's lives <laughs> and that's exactly the consequence yeah he also had a solution to the housing crisis the housing crisis is a big uh, a big thing that whips around the western world today he said quote housing is an essential need for both the individual and the family and should not be owned by others living in another person's house whether paying rent or not compromises freedom so he abolished rent and this meant, of course, that, that people you know, had no money to build houses, to ma maintain their houses. In the end, the irony is that by trying to create this so-called classless, stateless society, Gaddafi allowed the state to take ownership of everything. Indeed. In his stateless society, the state was all that there was. And the state was Gaddafi. That's how the system played out. Libya became a... It was called a centrally unplanned economy. It was a chaotic, unplanned economy where the state dominated everything and the state was reducible to Gaddafi the man. But then this, this is the, 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 the final gaslighting moment. He even pretended that he wasn't in power. <laughs> he refused to be given any official title like president. No, no. He was, he, he, he was simply... The brother leader. He was the brother of the of the of the Libyans. He wasn't their official leader at all. He was only the leader of the revolution. But that's it. No more than that. Just the leader of the revolution. So I always knew that this episode was going to be a bit looser, a bit more conversational than our other episodes. And you know, God knows we could talk for another hour or two about Gaddafi. 
and about the times, the life and times of Colonel Gaddafi. And perhaps we'll have to do another episode one day because there's lots that we're you know, not talking about. I mean, he had an infamous rivalry with Yasser Arafat an infamous rivalry with Saddam Hussein. Uh, we mentioned his spat with King Abdullah, but he, you know, he, my goodness, I'm just looking at my notes here, Eamon, you know, his African adventures, you know, supporting liberation movements in countries in Zimbabwe, Angola, Mozambique. He helped Idi Amin, for goodness sake. Uh, he, <laughs> he, had the, he had a network of mercenary armies all around Africa trying to spread his, his revolution or whatever the hell he was trying to do. I mean, you mentioned how he made... Libya, a center of organization for all sorts of terrorist groups, the IRA, the Red Brigades, the Basques, the Sandinistas, you know, Carlos the Jackal, who led the 1975 OPEC hostage crisis, which, uh, you know, Muammar Gaddafi, it is understood mastermind, you know, that the killing of Louise Fletcher in uh, outside the Libyan embassy in London in 1984, terrorist attacks, hijackings of airplanes, Bombing of airplanes. Bombing of airplanes. Uh, most famously, the, the infamous Lockerbie bo- uh, air, you know, airplane disaster of 1988. This caused you know, America to become increasingly infuriated with him. They bombed Libya in 1986, including his own palace, to try to you know, bring him uh, to heel. Oh my goodness. You know, he, his, the life and times of Colonel Gaddafi are, are really, they're, they're huge, and we can't do them justice. So I just want to talk here about two two things, really. First of all, Islamism. Colonel Gaddafi comes to power as a as a Nasserite, a Nasserist. He rules as a kind of weird, psychotic Nasserist Islamist to some extent. But then he, as you said, he is proclaimed a heretic because his views on Islam are crazy, and he becomes a target of of this uh, growing Islamist, uh, all these growing Islamist movements throughout the the Middle East uh, at this period. And as a result, he ends up cracking down hard on Islamists in Libya. Well, there is the infamous Abu Salim prison massacre. Uh, Abu Salim prison is a prison that Gaddafi reserved only for the Libyans who went to fight the jihad against the Soviets in Afghanistan. As you know, he supported the Soviets. However, those Libyans who came back uh, or those Libyans who supported the Afghan jihad or those Libyans who were members of the Muslim Brotherhood they were sent to Abu Salim prison in Benghazi, and that was a very notorious prison. They had organized themselves, you know, in, in Afghanistan. They had decided, when we come back to Libya, we're going to overthrow Gaddafi, whom they called the pharaoh. Uh, he, they believed he needed to be overthrown, and they were right about that. Oh, yeah. So they founded what was called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. And in 1995, the regime in Libya uncovered their network and cracked down on them hard sending them to this Abu Salim prison, uh, which uh, in the end uh, was the site of a, a, an enormous prison uprising in June of 1996. It is this uprising that led to the, the infamous massacre. Indeed, which, of course, the uh, Gaddafi gave the order uh, that everyone inside the prison to be shot. 1,286 people were killed and buried in a mass grave. Indeed. Um, no dignity, nothing you know afforded to these people, uh, regardless of the fact that, like, I mean, I, I, dis- I disagree with every single one of them, you know, an ideological reason. But you know, no matter what, like, and I mean, you don't just kill them and then uh, you put them in mass grave. And I think you know the the, the reality is that Gaddafi had uh, ruled Libya with a mix of intimidation and cruelty. 
uh, and you know uh, just pure pure vindictiveness for many 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 years the people of benghazi in the in the east of the country experienced this particularly harshly after uh, the abu slim crackdown i mean islamist activity was particularly strong in the east that's where the Sanusis had been based, this kind of, you know, uh, Sufi uh, pietistic movement that eventually, you know, gave rise to the king. So the, the east of the country was always particularly Islamic. Uh, they had, a, they had a, a form of Islam not so different from Wahhabism, actually. Uh, and so it's where the Islamists were largely located. And after the Abu Slim crackdown, Gaddafi punished the whole area. So he basically implemented collective punishment against eastern Libya, uh, and and Benghazi and the surrounding towns were were they became much 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 less developed than the rest of of Libya, and therefore perhaps it's unsurprising that in 2011 it is where it's there that the uprising against Gaddafi began, uh, which would uh, <laughs> result in him uh, meeting a very very hairy end. You see, the pity here is that. Uh, in the last days of Gaddafi, you know, we're talking about 2009, 10, and 11. I mean, you know, roughly the last two, two and a half years of his uh, life or his reign over Libya were less vindictive and less repressive than the previous 40 years. And, you know, why is that? We say, we say because of his son, Saif al-Islam al-Gaddafi. Uh, he started moderating his father's view. He started reaching out to the Islamists and reaching out to the people of Benghazi and Dirna and Tobruk and other places and started to have a, um, a more constructive negotiations with them, started to get them out of prisons, uh, rehabilitating them, you know, inviting them to come back from exile. The whole idea is that Saif al-Islam saying to his father, well, look, I mean, you are old now. One day you will pass this to me. So let me start putting together, you know, uh, you know, a more consensus rule. And Saif al-Islam had a good head over his shoulder. You know, I knew one of his classmates, you know, when he was studying. And so they were always saying that he was a cool-headed guy. Like, I mean, you know, very different from his dad. At the same time, international sanctions, which were leveled against Libya in the 80s and especially the 90s, really did begin to bite. So much so that, that Gaddafi himself realized that he had to change his relations with, with the rest of the world somewhat, at least. And so he did agree to give up his weapons of mass destruction plans. Uh, he did, to some extent, come in from the cold. Uh, and, you know, in the noughties, there was this idea that maybe even with Gaddafi in power, maybe Libya can be reformed, maybe Libya can become a, a functioning state. Uh, well, whether or not, we'll never know, because in 2011, the Arab Spring came to Libya. And uh, in fact, that's one of my favorite quotes from Gaddafi. When, when, the, uh, when the Libyans began protesting, uh, inspired by the protests in Tunisia and in, in Cairo and in elsewhere, uh, Gaddafi was told about the protesters, and he said, "You know what? I'm going to go protest too. There is so much injustice in Libya. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that defeating the purpose? I mean, you know, you know what? Like, you know, I mean, he was his last speech. You know, when he went, uh, you know, and spoke from the ruins of the palace, which you know the Americans bombed in 1986, he gave a speech, a very passionate speech, but very angry and vindictive and." you know, incoherent, and it's like a, a, a dad who felt betrayed by his, you know, ungrateful kids. He gave that speech in which he was, uh, you know, uh, saying to them, you can protest, 
but not in the streets or the squares. Then where? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but where then? Where do you want them to protest? But then he said something interesting. He said, you want me to resign? Resign from what? I don't have an official position. If I have an official position, I will throw the resignation letter in your faces. Um, and you think, um, but you're the leader. I mean, you are in control. I mean, if you can't see it, then who? And you see this, you know, again, as if like, you know, basically, you know, he felt betrayed by kids who are ungrateful. It's it, it's a sign of like, you know, internal madness. And the people were waiting for Saif al-Islam al-Gaddafi to speak. Unfortunately, when he spoke, he sided so much with his father. And he decided that, you know what, blood is thicker than water. You know, we're going to fight it. And ironically, they were winning. Yeah, NATO intervened because uh, the, the the regime's forces were on the verge of really cracking down hard on Benghazi. There, you know, there there was the idea that there would be mass slaughter. At least that's that's what was believed. Well, that's the idea. But the problem is, to be in all fairness, in all fairness, was there going to be a mass massacre? Because they took over Masrata, they took over uh, other places, and there was no massacres. I mean, was he reserving the massacre for Benghazi? It is disputed, but nonetheless. The intervention happened. It empowered the, the the forces against Gaddafi. Exactly, Gaddafi himself uh, was forced to flee first to Sirte, uh, where you know near where he had been born, and then when Sirte, when they closed in on Sirte, he he got in a convoy and headed back to his home, his home, his little village in the desert, that place that he was born, uh, that he grew up uh, and lived in a tent, uh, and there the Arab Spring militants found him crouching, hiding in what was it, a sort of sewage? It was pipe. a sewage pipe. Unbelievable. I mean, really, this is an epic story to think that he was reduced, and for all the world to see, they had their they had their Cameras, um, yeah. you know, their iPhones out, and they, you can see him. They drag him out of the sewage pipe, they harangue him, they beat him, and they murder him. At the end of the day, it was an unfortunate end. Um, for me, I wish if he stood trial and answered every single charge against him, including the Abu Salim massacre. Um, and not to be killed in that way, you know. Nonetheless, he's a leader, regardless. Like you know, you don't treat leaders like this. Uh, there is a protocol here, and the protocol is that you take him, you put him before a court, and he has the right to defend himself, and he has the right to say what he has to say. But then justice will catch up with him. I don't know, Eamon. I, I I don't feel much uh, sympathy for Colonel Gaddafi. He he ruled as a Bedouin. He died as a Bedouin. I I don't really <laughs> think. I don't care. I don't need him to have uh, been put on trial. I mean, I, I I mourn for what what happened to Libya next. The descent into terrible civil war, being torn apart by different foreign powers, by its own chaos. All of this is the legacy of Gaddafi, uh, uh, and God knows when that will be sorted out. But. We started this episode by me suggesting that Gaddafi could be a symbol of how the Arab world as a whole, in a way, after the defeats of 1967 uh, and the death of Nasser, kind of went nuts and all sorts of crazy characters came to power. Saddam, Hafez al-Assad, and then his son, uh, Saleh. You know, Saleh in Yemen, Beni Ali, perhaps less so, but still a bit of a dick in Tunisia, yeah. Mubarak even in Cairo. This style of Arab big man wearing sunglasses, spouting nonsense, uh, ruling rather haphazardly, rather uh, impetuously and completely dictatorially. 
even like Yasser Arafat to a certain extent. I mean, what do you think? I mean, you're an Arab, uh, Eamon, although you're not from one of those countries, but nonetheless, what what the hell happened? Why was the Arab world forced to endure for so many decades such characters? I'm afraid I'm going to have to resort to one of the statements by the Prophet Muhammad in order to explain this. Please do. I mean, Gaddafi wouldn't like it. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't care what he like or doesn't like. He's dead. <laughs> Good. Six feet under. Anyway, but what the Prophet Muhammad said, he said, Kama As you are, your rulers will be. Your rulers will reflect you. So if you're good people, if you're decent, you know, your rulers will be good and decent. But if you are deceitful, if you are, you know, uh, not united, if you are distrustful towards each other, if you are not, you know, uh, aspiring for, uh, you know, for better life, for, you know, dreaming for a better future, then why should your rulers be better than you? Also, uh, if you have become under the influence of totalitarian, absolutist, modern ideologies, various isms, nationalism, internationalism, communism, even to some extent, you know, liberalism, capitalism, while at the same time wishing to remain faithful to what you understand to be your inherited tradition of Islam and all of that. It's 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 hard, and and Gaddafi Gaddafi symbolizes that. You know, we you and I, Eamon, we've we've had this ongoing debate about the extent to which modern ideas, which are largely you know Western in origin, in origin, can coexist harmoniously with with Islam. And I know I know what you say, and and the listener knows what I think. But certainly in the case of Gaddafi, there's a symbol of of my my argument, which is that. When modern ideas, m- yeah, but he was unhinged. <laughs> he was well, he unhinged. was unhinged. But you, but you say, you know, you say that the the Arabs at the time who were trying to balance in their minds these different, I think, irreconcilable ways of thinking and ways of living. Yeah, you know, they they got the the ruler that they the rulers that they deserved. You know, because exactly the, the Arab soul was being torn apart by these mutually incompatible. Ideologies, perspectives, whatever you, whatever you want to call them, religions, even exactly. And you see, he wasn't the only leader who met, you know, a uh, you know a bloody fate. Look at Saleh, you know, in Yemen, he was killed by his allies in the end. The Houthis, look, S- Saddam, Saddam, hanged, hanged, uh, you know, and you know. So at the end of the day, you know, and one day Bashar al-Assad will receive, you know, will receive that, like in you know, the karma has its own way, uh, you know. Bashar inshallah. will end up like this, inshallah. <laughs> so, you know, so, so what I'm saying here is that we come back again to the fact that. This is what happened, you know, when you jeer against a saint like King Idris and you cheer, you know, for an insane clown like Gaddafi. You get what you deserve. The Arab masses will get what it deserve. You know, and this is why what I'm saying is that, you know, when uh, someone was saying, how do we achieve, you know, al-mamlak al-fadila, you know, the virtuous kingdom. I remember in front of me, one of the most celebrated you know, Salafi, Al-Hadith clerics, you know, in the Arab world. He was asked, how do we achieve Al-Mamlak Al-Fadila? How do we achieve the virtuous kingdom? And he said, first, establish it in your heart and it will become a reality in your life on the ground. But if, you know, if your heart is not virtuous, there will be no virtue in real life. The kingdom of heaven is within you. I certainly believe that. Yes. Uh, that's that's a, a note of unity between you, my Muslim friend, and me, your Christian friend. Uh, I hope 
dear listener, you've enjoyed our rather strange conversation about a very strange man, <laughs> Colonel Gaddafi. Uh, after a few episodes that have told more or less a single story, climaxing in the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, well, we're gonna, we've spent this episode and we're going to spend another couple of episodes meandering a bit. Uh, this episode on Colonel Gaddafi. In the next episode, we are thankfully going to leave the Arab world for a while and travel to the Indian subcontinent. Yes, stay tuned for Eamon and me discussing Kashmir, partition, and all things Indo-Pakistani. Please do follow the show on both Facebook and Twitter at MHConflicted. And speaking of Facebook, we have a wonderful community of listeners there, which you can find by searching for Conflicted Podcast Discussion Group. There you will be able to engage in conversations and debates with like-minded folks around the topics Eamon and I discuss here on the show. And if you're a fan of exclusive extra content, then you may be interested to know that at the end of each show, Eamon and I pick a question sent in by one lucky listener to answer for our exclusive bonus section. To access this content and to listen to Conflicted ad-free, you can subscribe to the show for just 99p on Apple Podcasts, or sign up to Conflicted Extra over on Spotify for the same great perks, again, for just 99p. Please join us again in two weeks' time for another great episode of Conflicted. Conflicted is a Message Heard production. This episode was produced and edited by Rowan Bishop. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Production support and fact-checking by Molly Freeman. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley. Thank you.